But the office life was a little bit of a challenge because I had kind of two career office clerk workers on this side, and they, are, they were sour people. Um, I think they knew that they were kind of in a dead-end job. They didn't have really any aspirations to do anything else. And if you ever work with someone that kind of like you go in the office and it's kind of like all of a sudden just, just a dark cloud over them, if you get too close to them, it rains on you too, you know? And they're just kind of like, how are you doing? They're like, I'm doing okay. You know, what are you doing? I can't wait for vacation. When's vacation? Eight months from now. You're like, oh my gosh, you know? <laughs> now, this just an aside, smoke like chimneys, like all the time, like I got to go for a smoke break, you know? So that kind of just played into it. But Howie worked there. Now, Howie could have been a stand-up comedian. He's about this tall, but he's built like this, looked like a British bulldog. And he was hilarious. He was just the kind of guy that walked up, and he knew everyone because he introduced himself to everyone. He was, he probably, I mean, he wasn't a believer, but he was the smoothest, like, lady talker ever. I mean, I just walked with him down Fayetteville Street Mall in Raleigh, and he'd just walk up to a lady and be like, you're beautiful, let's go out tonight. And she'd be like, what's your number? You know, it's kind of like that. He's just a, this is a neat guy, and he was hilarious, and he'd tell stories, and everyone would be kind of like, hey, I've got, a, I've got an errand to run. And if I was there, they'd give me an errand to run. But if, if it was just sour pusses, they'd be like, is, is Howie here? I'm not going to trust you guys with this. Y'all might, you know, burn up my thing. And so Howie was just everybody, hey, how's Howie? What's Howie doing? What's going on? And then one day, Howie, like me, went on to do his next job. And, I, you know, I didn't even know. He's, he's kind of said, hey, pretty soon I'll be looking for this other job. I'm pretty, pretty sure it's going to happen. I'm going to move down to Wilmington, do this, yada, yada, yada. And then we didn't know when it was happening. And I came in one Monday morning, and Howie was gone. And it gave me such context for when the glory of Israel, the glory of God left the temple. Because the glory of Howie left the office. And it was sad. And it was me and sourpusses. And so they were just kind of like, so I don't know, I, I, all of a sudden my workload went from here to here because nobody wanted to hand it to a lady that was like, yeah, you know, so, but it was sad. The, the glory of Howie left the office and everything was a little bit darker and everything was a lot less fun. And that pales in comparison to what happens in Ezekiel chapter 10, where Ezekiel watches as the opposite of what has happened in 1 Kings 7 happens. In 1 Kings 7, Solomon dedicates, 1 first, first Chronicles 7, 1 first, first Kings 7, 1 Kings Solomon dedicates the temple, and the glory of God fills the temple up so much that the priests can't even do their job. And now in Ezekiel 10, he watches it in reverse, where the cherubim raise up and the glory of God raises up, and he watches it leave the temple of his people. So in Ezekiel 1 through 5, we've got to realize we've got in Ezekiel 1 through 5, we've got, to get, we've got his calling, but we have his physical demonstrations of prophecy. So in, these, in Ezekiel 1 through 5, you've got Ezekiel's calling, and then he's doing these things, you know, his reenactments, his, his, his modeling to, to show and to demonstrate what's going on. And so that continues into Ezekiel 6, but in Ezekiel 6 through 10, 8 through 10 specifically are one single vision where God shows him what is going to happen six years later. Six years later, the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning, pillaging of the temple is going to happen. And he gets the vision of it, and his responsibility is to share this with the people and to faithfully tell them. Remember what we said, he, God would say last week, he said this twice. He said, listen, the job of telling is on you. The job of hearing is, is not your responsibility. Whether they listen or not, you just have to make sure that you tell them. So let me go back and I'll kind of set you up because we have these same things as last week. Son of man, 
And so he comes, to the, he comes to Ezekiel, and the Lord in chapter 6 says, Son of man. Now this is the part where we want to hopefully make these chapters accessible to you. Because if you read them this past week, you might have been kind of like, wow, there's a lot of death and destruction. And if you read them to your kids before you went to bed, some of them did not sleep well. Or if they were boys, they were like, this is amazing. You know? But Ezekiel 6 through 10 We'll start, with, we'll start with chapter 6. If you've got your Bible, you can kind of follow along, just kind of look at this. Maybe you're, maybe you're someone that can skim and listen. But in Ezekiel 6, Ezekiel's continuing to give visual witness to Israel's sinful idolatry. And so Ezekiel goes out, and he, he, God says to Ezekiel, go stand before the mountains and prophesy against them. All right. How many of y'all are excited this afternoon about driving up to the Blue Ridge Parkway? Sweet, good. When you get to an overlook, stand and start prophesying against the mountains, especially if there's a crowd of people around you. I see you over there, Grandfather Mountain. I'm thinking I'll see you. You be quiet, Hawksbill. But why? And he even says, clap your hands and stomp your feet. So if you can imagine, you roll up on Ezekiel. He's prophesying to the mountains, clapping his hands and stomping his feet. Why was he doing this? And he said, prophesy against the mountains because the people have defiled them. They have defiled the mountains by their idol worship. Now remember, idol worship starts out, and you don't do it out in public. What would have happened would have been that the Israelites who were surrounded by other, other religions, other cults, other idol-worshiping people, they would have got a curiosity. And the things about idol worship that appealed to their flesh would have, would have aroused things in them. And they wouldn't have gone and done it out in the open at first, but they would have gone to the, what were called the sacred groves and the mountaintops, and the secret places, and worshipped idols in secret. But the Lord was saying, I know what you were doing in secret. I know what you were doing in secret. So Ezekiel, go out and clap your hands and stomp your feet. And every time they clap your hands, same thing happens in Ezekiel 21. It's to mimic the clash of swords. I see it. I see it. I'm not okay with idolatry. I see it. And justice and discipline are coming. And so then we get into chapter 7. In chapter 7... Nine times in chapter 7, this phrase is repeated, it will come, or it is to come. And God is saying to Ezekiel again in chapter 7, listen, you must be faithful in telling the people of the coming disaster that's going to happen. Remember, it's six years from now, and, the, and people might say, well, Ezekiel, you said it, but I'm, I'm looking, and ain't nothing happening. And he would say, be patient with the Lord, for the Lord's justice cometh and cometh soon. And so in six years, death and destruction and, and the absolute desolation of the temple is going to happen. And so in chapter 7, he says, listen, you gave all of your wealth and you used your wealth to sin. And specifically, you used your wealth to create and worship and foster a system of idolatry in Israel. So now we've gone from worshiping the idols in secret up in the hilltops and the groves and the secret places to now fostering an addiction or, or a, a allegiance to idol worship with your finances. And he says, so what's going to be the one of the most painful things for you to watch is this money that you have had, these riches and wealth, wealths that you have had, you are going to painstakingly watch me redistribute them to your enemies. And the weapons of warfare and the machine of war that will come and crush you will be funded by your idol blood money. And so you said you gave to idols, but I'm going to turn around and I'm going to use it to do through the Babylonians justice to you. Now, this is something that might perplex you. Why would God take sinful pagans and why would he then use those people as his instrument to bring punishment on his people? This goes right back to Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29. 
Moses, as he's speaking his final sermon, says, I have given you these commandments, I have given you these laws, but if you refuse to follow them, but if you refuse, and if you turn to idols, God may send pestilence on you, he may send plagues on you, he may send drought and famine on you, he will use neighboring nations to punish you. This is also, says this is also coming in, in 1 Kings and also in Chronicles when Solomon dedicates the temple. And he says, before you, you have blessings and curses. If you choose to follow the Lord, you'll be blessed. If you choose to disobey and follow idols, you'll be cursed. And God will raise up foreign nations to come and punish you. And so be dismayed that God says, even evil people are my evil people and I am God's sovereign. And so this, this text in chapter 7 ends with this just kind of Sad note where he says, and even your princes and kings will stand shaking their hands, not being able to go to anyone or receive an answer or give an answer to anyone because I have cut off my communication with them. Chapter 8 then begins this single vision, 8, 9, and 10, the single vision of what will come and this also x-ray vision that you can have into the temple of what's going on. So chapter 8, remember, we've got to remember that Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel's in exile with Babylon. We hope and we think that he might have been a contemporary with Daniel at the time. But also remember, Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem at the same time. And they are all prophesying and doing the Lord's work. But he is in Babylon. So he encounters in verse 2 in chapter 8 the messenger of the Lord. Whenever we see the messenger of the Lord, this typically is the pre-incarnate version of Christ. And so you can see, you can see the description. He was a man clothed in linen, but his body glowed like bronze and amber. He, and this is, he reached out to me what appeared to be a hand. You know what something appears to be a hand? It's when you're so blinded by light and glory, and it could be anything reaching out to you, and you're just kind of go like, it seems like a hand. It's just so glorious. It's so amazing. I'm not really sure I can tell. And then it says, and he picked him up by the hair. Ezekiel at this point is like, this seems about right. He picked me up by the hair. What that's trying to tell you is that he doesn't say his, he was transported. It was literally a vision to say he is going to take you visually to Jerusalem, though your body is going to be right here in Babylon. And so he took some by the hair. He went in spirit to Jerusalem. His body stays in Babylon. And there in chapter 8, Ezekiel is exposed or sees now the idolatry that has come and made its way into the temple. Now let's talk about idolatry again. Remember, first it's in secret places. Then you fund it. And then you, you begin to give to it. And then all of a sudden it becomes this thing which you embrace in public and then finally, it comes and it takes the place of the Lord in your life. And so he's this, this vision while he's in Babylon of what is going on in Jerusalem. Amazing. And he sees people at different parts of the temple where there are idols now in the temple in Jerusalem, which this was going on. The priest thought it wasn't just enough to worship Yahweh, but let's also pay our dues to all these other gods as well. And again, before you start chastising these people like, how stupid is it to bow down before, you know, before a, uh, an idol? I would just like to say to you, like, why do we have psychics and tarot card readers and people that, why do they print the horoscope in the newspaper every week? Why? Because people still believe in that stupid stuff. Secondly, it's because there's fringe benefits of the flesh and sinfully to worship idols. Ritualistic sex, feasting, eating foods that were forbidden, doing things sexually outside of your marriage with whoever, whenever, however, and wherever. And that appeals to the flesh. And so they were going to that as well. And so Ezekiel is then exposed to the depths of idolatry. The people worshiping God, but now they've incorporated idol worship. And so when we think about how disgusting this is, what we've got to realize is that God continues to talk about Israel as a marriage. 
Israel, you are like my bride. And it's the same thing where we get the same thing today when we talk about Revelation or even where Christ will talk about this, where we are the bride of Christ. It is not just some kind of like partnership that we have. We're intimately tied to him because we have been raised and resurrected by him. And so the people are bringing into the temple, they're bringing into God's sacred space other lovers in the form of idols. And so then, if it's not even enough, we get to do some, Ezekiel kind of gets to do this neat thing in his vision where God says, see that wall right there? Dig through it. Dig through it. And so he begins to dig through the wall, and on the other side of the wall, he can see the priests, the leaders, worshiping carvings on the walls of, of snakes and lizards and all these kind of vile and disgusting things. And then at the very end, Paul, God, says, God says to Ezekiel, turn, I'll show you even one more thing that's the worst. And he takes him to the inner part of the temple. And the elders are there in verses, and later on, right before verses 17 and 18. And they are worshiping the sun in the innermost part of the temple. And so in verses 17 and 18, God then pronounces his divine judgment in chapter 8 of what he is going to do. And he says, it is now going to be that I will judge and I will bring punishment and I will bring discipline and I will bring death. So in chapter 9, chapter 9 now, if we transition, he actually has the vision for what will happen on the days of the year 586, where Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is laid desolate. And this is so distressing again because it's the Babylonians that are doing it. The Babylonians that are doing it, but as again, it was promised in 2 Chronicles, it was promised in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. But the neat thing about it is in chapter 9, we also then get the first hint of God's continual love for his people in that he says, but there will be a remnant that I will save. Now let me, let me put a pin right there just for a minute. He talks about this remnant. He talks about this final group that, he will sa- that he's going to save, this small group of people. But before we need to go back and look at what's in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and then we're going to see it specifically in chapter 10 as well. But notice how God refers to himself the entire time. The God of Israel. When we get there to chapter 10, chapter 10 is going to say the God of Israel. Notice what? There's anger, there's going to be justice, there's going to be divine punishment, but there's never going to be desertion. One more time, there's never going to be desertion. He's never going to say, I'm no longer your God, you're no longer my people. He's going to stick with them. And so this promised salvation actually happens to a remnant that's going to be there. And he says, listen, I'm going to, t- I'm going to send my messenger, who again, who is a, a pre-incarnate Christ figure, who is going to go throughout the city and he's going to find people that are mourning and weeping over the idolatry they see, over the, over the absolute desolation of holiness that you see in this city. And I'm going to go and I'm going to send my messenger and anyone that is weeping, you're going to put on their foreheads the symbol, the Hebrew, Tau. You're going to put that on their foreheads. Not to make too, too much of this, but do you know what the Hebrew letter Tau is? It's a cross. And a cross is going to be placed on the forehead of all of those who are mourning over the sins of Israel. And they will be saved to be the remnant of the faithful that God will use to rebuild the nation of Israel. And so this beauty of it, within this desolation, there are still the faithful that are there. But then he says, this is the hard part, slaughter the rest. And now completely defile the temple. This is a little bit ironic because the temple is already what? It's already been defiled. But now he says, do it on my dollar. Do it on my dollar. Fill it up with the bodies of the dead. And in verse 8, Ezekiel simply cries out and he says, Lord, what will become of us? How, how is this going to happen? How are we even going to go on? Are you meaning to even just wipe us all out? And so chapter 10 is the response. 
So chapter 10 is the response. And chapter 10, even though it's devastating to Ezekiel, it is the reversal of Solomon's dedication of the temple. But in response to verse 8 of chapter 9, God doesn't make some bigger promise. He doesn't say, he doesn't give him a couple psalms to meditate on. He shows Ezekiel once again his glory. I was reading in Warren Wearsby this past week. Sometimes Christians, and especially those in ministry and leadership, we don't need a new message from the Lord. We don't need a new direction from the Lord. We don't need some new revelation from the Lord. We need to come back to the first revelation we have from the Lord, which was the exposed glory of God, which got our hearts in the first place. And so he does the same thing to Ezekiel, and he says, listen, don't forget, Ezekiel, I am glorious. I am glorious. I am glorious. You're called to magnify my glory to the world and to my people. So Bob is going to take us deeper and talk about the Lord's glory. I'd like you to just close your eyes for a minute or two. I need your imagination. In your back of your eyelids, I want you to visualize the thickest fog you have ever encountered. And then go to the fastest motion you have witnessed. The brightest light you have ever seen. And then the highest height you've ever climbed or seen. The greatest wealth you've ever contacted in person. The strongest power you've seen. The purest beauty your eyes have laid on. The most terrifying event you've ever experienced. And finally, visualize the most breathtaking spectacle you have ever seen. The one that just, you had no words. Okay, so open your eyes. For me, that last one especially takes me to sunrise at Haleakala on Maui when we were there. And you can't capture it in a picture, but it's just to be there in the dark and you're up on the highest peak anyway on Maui and to watch the sun come over the volcano, just there are no words to express when you see it. But if you take all of these images together, wherever they took you for the last minute or so, and you assemble them, you have some idea of what the Old Testament means physically by the glory of God. So it's power, it's motion, it's beauty, it's wonder, it's awe-inspiring. It's all of those things wrapped up into one that somehow is captured in the word glory. So Pastor Paul and I have a slightly different approach to the book of Ezekiel, and that's okay. That's one of the reasons we both preach. His approach is to sort of take you through all of the chapters of the book and make sure we don't miss any piece of it. My approach is to take, as we look at these different scriptures, to take one aspect of who God is and really focus on that aspect of God. So I could not help but focusing today on the glory of God. 
And when I looked up the word glory in the Bible, I found 360 places from Exodus to Revelation that talk about the glory of God, and I'm going to read all of them to you. Not really. But I am going to sort of overview the glory of God in the Bible because this is what captures me. The very first reference to the glory of God comes when the children of Israel are at the Red Sea and they, God has just told Moses that Pharaoh has changed his mind and he's chasing you down. And God says to Moses, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And you know the story. Not only did they drown, but they actually saw the pillar of fire and cloud that prevented Pharaoh and his army from chasing Moses and the Israelites into the Red Sea. Glory becomes a theme for the Israelites in the desert. When there's manna on the wilderness floor, that's glory. Moses asks to see God's glory when he is on the mountain. When the tabernacle is set up, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, you're thinking of light and beauty and power and motion in the tabernacle. That radiant cloud appeared regularly at this tent of meeting, especially when people rebelled, like they would see the glory of God and know how wrong that was. From that time on, glory was always associated with the Ark of the Covenant. So this was where they stored the Ten Commandments and the manna and the, the rod and so forth. But inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And wherever the Ark was, the glory of God was there. Whether or not you saw the radiant light at that moment, that represented the glory of God. And on either end of the, of the tabernacle were two cherubim on top to represent the power and majesty of God. So a few, uh, a little while later, when the, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines, the aged priest fell over and died. The glory has been taken away from us. His daughter-in-law gave birth and she named her son Ichabod, which means no glory. The glory of God is the Ark of the Covenant. And so when Solomon builds Israel's first permanent temple, magnificent in size and grandeur, and they have a parade with all sorts of trumpets and choir singers and thousands of sacrifices. What really made that day glorious was when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in, and that's when the glory of God filled the temple so that the priests couldn't even go in. And all of this is background for the Psalms, which record different ways in which the word glory is used. For example, glory is occasionally used by kings, but over, about kings, but overwhelmingly it's in reference to God. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. There's glory in nature, but it's always God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies display the work of his hands. Glory becomes a verb in the Psalms. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Declare his glory among the nations. But the one place even in the Psalms most identified with the glory of God is still the temple in Jerusalem. It's not like the cloud is always there, like it's lighting up the sky like Bank of America Stadium for a night game or whatever. The temple represents the presence and the glory of God and his unique relationship with Israel. So the temple, whenever you go there, it reminds you of who God is, of his covenant, of his promises. And if you want to experience God's glory, go to the temple. 
If you're having a hard time connecting with God, go to the temple. If you've offended God, go to the temple. Offer your sacrifice. If you want to meet God, there's one place where you can go, where you know you can encounter God, and that's at the temple in Jerusalem. The glory of God is always there, and it's there for about a millennium. And that's why when we come to the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, who never sees, who never just tells you like the glory of God left the temple. Ezekiel is the, you know, the PowerPoint guy, the YouTube guy, right? He's got to show it to you visually. And in his visions, what he shows you is the gradual departure of the glory of God. And in chapter 8, even though there's idolatry there, the glory of God is still in the temple. In chapter 9, the glory of God leaves the Holy of Holies and moves to the threshold of the temple. And then in chapter 10, the glory of God hovers up over top of the temple and, and reaches the eastern gate, leaving the temple. And then in chapter 11, the glory of God leaves the temple area altogether and is sitting on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. So what does it mean when the glory of God leaves the temple? It's not just that there is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. It means that there is no longer anywhere where you can know when you go there, you will encounter God. That's the Old Testament view of the glory of God. And that's why Ezekiel's prophecy is so powerful when it symbolizes you know what happened you know what's happened your idolatrous worship has gotten so bad that God himself has left you and you know what the glory never came back to that place they rebuilt the temple after they came back from exile and the prophet Haggai actually says has any of you seen this new temple? There's no glory there. And then when Herod comes around a few hundred years later, the time of Jesus, and expands the temple and makes it more magnificent, physically speaking, than even Solomon's temple, there's no record in the Bible or beyond that the glory of God filled the temple again. That's how pivotal it is in Ezekiel chapter 10 to say that the glory of God departed the temple. And that's how powerful this idea is. Where do we go to find God? We can't find him anywhere. And that's why we have to turn to the New Testament, which is a very unbobbed thing to do. If you know me when I preach, I like to just stick to the text. Let's see what's here. But the problem is, if we just stick with Ezekiel and his idea of the glory of God, then the way I've often heard this preached and taught is, Christian, you better watch out because the glory of God might leave you, or the glory of God might leave your nation, or the glory of God might leave your church or your denomination. So be careful that you don't lose the glory of God because they lost it in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, and you might lose the glory of God too, and you will lose touch with the presence and power of God. And I want to say to you that that is not the way the New Testament looks retrospectively on this event about the glory of God or on the topic of the glory of God. So God, does God have the prerogative to remove the glory from a nation? Some would say that America has lost its glory. And I'm going to say we never had it, not in a biblical sense. So I'm not suggesting that it's, you know, blasphemous somehow to use the word glory to refer to a nation or an event or even a, 
great catch on the NFL field or whatever. But anytime you use the word glory about anything other than God, it's kind of like holding up your flashlight uh, on your phone and going and putting it right next to the sun and going like, they're both light, right? So any other use of the word glory is that kind of comparison. We're talking about the infinite when we talk about, let's see if I know how to turn it off too, when we talk about the glory of God. It's not the same thing. It's not even close to the same thing. So what does the New Testament do with this idea of glory? We can't leave it, I can't leave the theme of the glory of God with Ezekiel. Let me make three brief points about the New Testament teaching on glory. First of all, the glory of God is seen fully, finally, and unalterably in Jesus Christ. You want to know where to find God? You want to know where to meet God? You want to know, you want to know that God loves you and forgives your sins? You want to know that God is walking with you? You want to know that God will never leave you or forsake you? You don't go to a temple. You don't go to any building. You don't go to any story of anybody. You go to Jesus. So this is New Testament teaching. On the night of Jesus' birth, the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds and the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on those, to those on whom his favor rests. At his baptism and a few other occasions, there were brief glimpses of the glory of God when they heard a voice from heaven. John says Jesus revealed his glory when he turned the water into wine, one of many miracles. The crowds on Palm Sunday shouted, peace in heaven and glory on the highest, and they were right about the who but not about the when they would experience the glory of God. The most visible and memorable display of Jesus' glory on earth was limited to three people. Peter, James, and John, who were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we're told that they were enabled through the radiance from within to catch a brief glimpse of the glory of God. John, more than the other three Gospels, speaks about the glory of God and in, in and through Jesus. You may think that the pinnacle of Jesus' glory is his resurrection, but actually John talks more about his death as his glory, believe it or not. So John is the one who actually in his prologue says, let me summarize Jesus before I even tell you his story. The word became flesh and dwelled among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The reason God's glory was removed from the temple was so that people would never again localize God's glory. So without the, 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 the glory of God being lifted from the temple, we don't have the setup for Jesus coming into the world and for our knowing that when we need the glory and presence of God, what we need is Jesus. So Jesus is the glory of God. He's the majesty, the authority, the strength, the power, the beauty, the wisdom, the breathless wonder of God. Just look to Jesus and what he did. Second theme in the New Testament, future glory. And that begins with Jesus because the glory that we see is often veiled. But Jesus himself says repeatedly, I will return in my Father's glory with the angels. And I will sit on my glorious throne. And he said he would come 
in cloud in a cloud with power and great glory. So glory describes where Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, and he will bring his people there. So Stephen's about to die. And he says that he saw the glory of God when he looked up to heaven. Paul says our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And the writer of Hebrews says that God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And the book of Revelation closes the New Testament with exclamations about the end of all things to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Glory is hidden from us now, but we will share in Jesus' glory at the end of the age. So glory is future. But the third theme, and it's kind of a surprising theme, given everything else that I've said about the glory of God, is that you and I display God's glory to varying degrees. We display God's glory. Jesus says, let your lights shine before men so that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, he told the disciples. And Paul says, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Christ in you, Paul says, is the hope of glory. So you already have a glimpse of that glory inside you if you're a believer, if you come to God through Christ. So the final application of a sermon on the glory of God is actually what Paul says in Corinthians when he's dealing with what was for them a very thorny issue, which is, do you eat meat sacrificed to idols in the temple? And he goes through lots of different arguments, pro and con, and, uh, but none of that matters as much as his sort of closing exclamation point. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So the glory of God is in you and displayed through you. And the only way the world will see the glory of God is not to come to a lovely Gothic cathedral, not even to watch you... Uh, necessarily to, to watch a big praise service or a lot of loud instruments or whatever, the way the world sees the glory of God is through your character, how you love, how Jesus has transformed you. The transformed believer is the best way for those around you and the world itself to witness that Jesus is real and he represents the presence and power of God. So all of that beauty and wonder and majesty and power and motion that's all concentrated in Jesus then flows through you to the world around you in order that they might experience God's still here, God still works, and we have a future that ultimately will share in the glory of God. Let's pray together. I'd like you to take your bulletin, please. The words will also be on the screen, I think, for the confession of sin. And you may remain seated while you um, just respond in unison with these words that we're going to use all the way through the book of Ezekiel so that we're consistently humbled by his message. And we'll follow this with a moment of silent confession. Let us pray together. Holy and heavenly Father, I hear the words obstinate, stubborn, and rebellious. I confess they describe my heart, my words, and my actions the way you see them. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. You are my only hope. By your life, death, and resurrection, 
I am known, loved, and forgiven. Holy Spirit, pierce my soul with my own unworthiness and open my eyes to my sins. Give me freedom to own my guilt and thus embrace your salvation. As we continue in quiet prayer, words to an old hymn came to my mind this morning and it's... um, doesn't use the word glory, but as I said, beauty is one aspect of glory. Make this your prayer. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous compassion and purity O Thou Spirit Divine, all my nature refine, till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Amen.